0: Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about our sponsor. The University of Dallas is a premier Catholic liberal arts institution, renowned for its rigorous core curriculum and thriving graduate programs. Careers in ministry, teaching, business, humanities, and science are formed here. With campuses in Texas and Rome, Italy, students begin their pursuit of a life well-lived. We have two alums of Dallas here at First Things on staff, and they are both superb. For more information on the University of Dallas, visit udallas.edu. That's udallas.edu. Cal Thomas has been a steady voice in the households of many millions of Americans for many years. He is the author of The Things That Matter Most, and Uncommon Sense. I'm focusing on his books. This is a book show. Uh, and he now has a record of what he has heard and witnessed in his distinguished career, a uh, lengthy career entitled, A Watchman in the Night. What I've seen over 50 years reporting on America. That's our topic today. Welcome, Mr. Thomas.
1: Thank you, Mr. Mark. Nice to be with you. <laughs>
0: so, uh, First, a biographical question. Uh, why did you become a journalist, columnist uh, in the first place? Did that hit you when you were when you were
1: very young? There was no counseling available at the time, and so <laughs> I was just drawn into it. Well, I started in radio when I was 16, about two weeks after my voice changed, and then I joined NBC News in Washington as a copy boy around the age of 19 while I was still in college, and depending on your view of the media, worked my way up or down from there. I was a reporter for the first half of my life, and then uh Became a columnist in 1984. And uh, it's uh, probably one of the few professions in which you get to meet people from many different backgrounds uh, from presidents, kings, uh, uh, show business personalities, uh, crooks, politicians, but I repeat myself. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a great business. I've enjoyed a tremendous career in it, and uh, it's still going on, I'm happy to say. Uh, what, what college? American University in Washington.
0: Oh, so you you were, and were you majoring in in journalism or?
1: I started to major in broadcasting, but I found I was learning more on the job than I was in a classroom. So I changed it to English literature, not because I wanted to be a scholar, but it appeared to me there were more girls taking the course than boys. Well,
0: I I was an English major. I became an English teacher uh, out of, out of, out of, after graduate school. So, so. Uh that was good to hear. Good to hear. I I I I'm I'm the majors not as popular as it, it used to be. I'll have to ch- check on that. But uh so they must have been very happy you 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 got into NBC before you even graduated.
1: Well, I did, and I tell young uh, journalism students that the most important thing you can do is get in the door, no matter what it is. If they ask you to make coffee, empty trash, uh sweep the floors, you can't do anything from the outside. Get in the door. Do the job well, don't complain, and ask older people for advice. Older people love to give advice, and if they think that you are interested in what they know, they will pour their lives into you. Now, I am an older person, and I'm giving advice to younger journalism students, but it's uh, it's better than anything you can learn in a classroom. It's it's like learning to swim. Uh, you've got to get in the pool, or learning to play golf. You can't watch a video. you got to get out there on the course yourself, so... Um, I was very fortunate. I started early and uh, I got to know some of the best uh, writers in the business, unknown probably to a lot of people under 40, but David Brinkley, uh, Martin Agronsky, Ray Scherer, Frank McGee, many others who uh, taught me by example. And as I read their scripts, how to write and how to be a real journalist, as opposed to so many who are advocates today, rather than really reporting on what's going on.
0: Was that WRC? That was the local NBC
1: station in Washington. Yes, we had a, uh, there was a situation uh, then where what they call the owned and operated stations of the network uh, were combined uh, in the same building with a local station. So I was doing local news and network news, uh, mostly on the radio, a little bit on television. And it was an ideal situation then.
0: In those early years, the way you talk about learning things, I, I, I wish... I wish more more young people, my, my own son, would, would hear what you, you just said. Talk to older people. Ask them questions about their lives. Find out how they got to be where they where they are. And it's not sucking up, it's I'm learning things, right? I'm, I'm acquiring yeah. some of their wisdom of, of experience. Well, that doesn't should, happen often enough these days, yeah, does it?
1: Shakespeare wrote the past as prologue. You know, we didn't, we're not the first generation to live. We didn't just crawl out of a cave or have to invent the wheel or discover the use of fire. There have been people who have gone before us who have tested various things, found out that some work and some don't. Why repeat the mistakes of the past when you can avoid them by asking people with experience of what they learned from their experience? And that's what I did at NBC, sometimes actively and sometimes Passively, I was in charge, among other things, of filing their scripts and they became my writing class. I would take them home at night and look and see how they rewrote uh, scripts from the uh, UPI and AP wire services, uh, how they chose their words, short sentences, not run on or compound complex sentences, and that uh, taught me how to be a writer. Young people yeah. ask me, well, how do, I, you know, how do I become a good writer? And I say, well, read good writers. Read people that you respect. Not necessarily you have to agree with them, but uh, see how they argue their points. And uh, keep your sentences short, uh, and you'll get uh, a better read than if you go on and on for 15 or 20 year, uh, words in a single sentence. Right. In those early
0: years, did you think about uh, acquiring
1: a beat? Right, a,
0: a a world of ex, a little area of expertise. Was that
1: Not conscious? really. I mean, there are, there are some people, of course, who do that in the law and science and other things. Uh, but I was uh, a general assignment reporter, and I much preferred that because you get a broader understanding of what's going on. One day you might be covering a hearing on Capitol Hill, and the next day you might be doing a, a story on crime or or some other thing. So. I really like being a general assignment reporter because of the exposure to uh, many different people, many of of different backgrounds, and uh, different cities and uh, different subjects. Yeah. Now you're you're known as as a
0: conservative writer uh, on on the spectrum. When you were when you were 23, 24, would you have identified yourself in that way? Did 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 a
1: political orientation mean as much to you then? Not really. I mean, my parents were Republicans, but I didn't really think much about it. I first started getting interested in uh, politics when a a friend of mine gave me a Barry Goldwater's uh, book, and uh, that's what piqued my interest. Uh, Of course, back then, when I was growing up, there were certain things that were taken for granted People were taught right from wrong, good from evil. There were certain standards. Uh, There was the search for truth. Maybe not everybody agreed on what truth was, but most people agreed that truth existed. Now all truth has become subjective. You have your truth, I have my truth, and even though they may be uh, opposite one another, as long as they make you feel good, that's all that matters. So I think we've seen the results of that. Uh, The the late Bishop Fulton J. Sheen uh, had it right when he said, America is not uh, so much bigoted as it is broad-minded. We now tolerate everything. And uh, I remember what C.S. Lewis wrote, we made men without chests We've removed the organ but demand the function. We laugh at honor and are shocked to find traitors in our midst. So from my writing, I begin with a standard, uh, a, sta- a biblical standard, uh, a sense of right versus wrong, a sense of what has worked in the past and what doesn't uh, work now. Uh, look at our debt, $33 trillion on the way to $34 trillion, an open border, uh, a loss of a shared sense of moral values. All of these things have contributed to the decline of nations and uh, great empires in the past. I wrote a book about that, too, called America's Expiration Date, and I think we're on the same path to, if not destruction, then certainly a a new kind of weakness that we've never experienced before because we've forgotten who we are as Americans, and as Ronald Reagan used to say... uh, we're only one generation away from losing it all. These values and virtues have to be renewed by every generation or they're lost. This,
0: this point really gets us into a, an important theme in the book when you're talking about the 80s. I should say, uh, you proceed in the book year by year, uh, mm-hmm. laying out some of the major themes, the stories that you did, and then later on the columns that you did. In In 1985, you wrote about, you say, Quote, moral erosion Mm. in the United States. Was that sort of the deeper transformations that you started, we started to witness? Did that prompt you to go from being more reportage into opinion
1: column? Yeah, well, a lot of people, you know, some people would write me, well, you're not very balanced. That's right. I'm, a, I'm an opinion columnist. I write my opinions on things. There are other columnists who write their opinions, and they may differ from mine. That's why it's called an op-ed page, opposite the editorial page. Uh, but I first started noticing this in the 70s, uh, or really the late 60s, you know, the, the uh, free love generation, which turned out not to be free or love, and uh, the rejection of a lot of the uh, values of my parents' and grandparents' generation uh, that has uh, resulted in a lot of uh, the moral chaos, the economic chaos, the political chaos that we're seeing today. Uh, So again, history is a great teacher if we pay attention to it. Get off TikTok, get off other social media, stop listening to your friends and uh, read stuff that really matters.
0: How did your colleagues generally take to your your opinion columns as you were sort of developing your, your take on things
1: well as a reporter i felt a responsibility if there was more than one side to accurate, accurately report uh, what the other side was uh, as a columnist i sometimes uh, you know pay attention to people that disagree with me in order to uh, critique their ideology and say why I think it's wrong. Um, and so there are two different careers within the same career, and uh, you can't really mix them up. One uh, a reporter is supposed to be as fair-minded as possible. I remember uh, David Brinkley uh, saying that it's impossible to be objective, so we must try to be fair as a reporter. But I don't make any uh, claim uh, to objectivity when I'm writing about opinions, whether they be Pro life, traditional marriage, uh, economics, uh, uh, foreign policy, standing up against uh, America's enemies, the Middle East. All of these things I have opinions on, uh, much of which I've experienced. I've been to the Middle East 27 times. I've traveled to Russia, China, uh, many parts of the world, and I've observed things up closely, which uh, helps to inform my opinions. And uh, I would say, I hope, uh, give me. Gives me credibility, including uh, uh, with uh, some of those who might uh, disagree with my conclusions.
0: Yeah, I, I think maybe, probably far too many younger journalists spend all their time uh, uh, at the screen, not That's getting true. out, talking to people. You, yep. you, you know, you got to be curious about about people. One one thing that I mean, I ask about colleagues because it, it seems that it, it takes a certain independence and. Uh, conviction or firmness to do something like you did in the 80s when you really started writing about the abortion issue strongly that I imagine 90 percent of your fellow journalists even back then uh weren't happy well not- I
1: always say that uh abortion is not the cause of our decadence it's a reflection of it and I think uh you know as a as a Christian, I see this as an attack upon the uh, image of God in all of us. And uh, that attack has existed not only in abortion, but also in, in the marriage relationships and in many other human relationships. And so I think when uh, a nation, a people, an individual uh, forgets uh, God, then, uh, you know, as Lincoln said uh, in, uh, in the middle of the Civil War, um, we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all of these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom of our own. Intoxicated Mm. with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the need of redeeming grace, too Mm. proud to pray to the God who made us. I thought that was incredibly profound and he said that in the middle of the Civil War. And that's something else we can uh, learn from. You know, we're not just uh, uh, material and energy shaped by pure chance in a random universe. With no author of life and no purpose for living and no destination after we die uh, these are uh, uh, supernatural not superficial things that a lot of people as you suggested a moment ago don't pay any attention to and yet they're the most important questions that could be asked who am i why am i here where am i headed and again i think social media cable tv to some extent and as you say spending too much time in front of the screen rather than exercising your brain and developing what we used to call wisdom, uh, produces the consequences that we're seeing today and we don't like. And we, you know, we pretend that politicians are going to solve these problems every election cycle. If they could solve them, wouldn't they have by now? Because they've certainly had enough opportunity. (laughs) That's true. True. I mean, you
0: you mentioned about, you know, getting out, your your travels uh, around the world, and one thing that does stand out in your accounts is, which is filled with many, many anecdotes that are revealing of the state of things at that time. But you you, you got out of D.C., you got out of New York City and would talk to people such as Bermuda's premier, uh, John Swan. And the so sometimes you hear the excuse made by by reporters or even editors that, well, we don't have the money anymore on our model to send people out to do that real kind of investigative work. Cal, do you, you you asked me to call you Cal. Cal, do you yeah. do you buy that
1: argument, the money argument? Well, that's partially true, but you have to ask why did we get to this situation where we don't have the money to do this? And I think that part of the reason, a major reason actually, is the loss of credibility uh, in the minds of many Americans in the media. Gallup has been consistent on this every year when they take a poll about trust in the media and other institutions, whether it be Congress, the presidency, even what they call organized religion. Uh, all of these institutions are in decline and uh, and are now lacking credibility. Uh, when I was with NBC, we had um, uh, bureau chiefs in Berlin, in Moscow, in London, and many other places in the world, and these were reporters who in Rome. Uh, these were reporters who uh, saw things up close and could report accurately and uh, with credibility from those places. And every January, uh, NBC brought the correspondents back and they they did a a national tour, what we now call town halls, and they would fill auditoriums because people were incredibly curious about what uh, these reporters had witnessed and what they'd reported on and what they saw as the future of of various uh, places that they had covered. None of that happens anymore. And if there are any foreign reporters left, there are a few, but they get sent to, uh, well, Ukraine and rotate it, but there are no full-time people in any major bureau now that I'm aware of uh, (laughs) because it costs too much, and the reason it costs a lot, and the reason they don't do it is, again, because of the lack of credibility. They're just not getting the money, and plus the technology is changing. I mean, newspapers are not read by younger people anymore, and that's, uh, that's a tragedy, I think, certainly for columnists like me. I once had over 500 newspapers, now it's down to 200 and some because Younger people just aren't reading them.
0: Hmm. Your Christmas column of 1993, (laughs) this is after the the Berlin Walls come down, the Soviet Union, you know, collapses. Nonetheless, your your column in 93 was pessimistic about a Pax Americana (laughs) uh, really becoming settled and successful. What? I mean... Sounds to me like you uh, you saw something that was really there. What led to your darker, more skeptical prophecy? Do you remember?
1: Yes, well, uh, human nature never changes, and that's the important thing. I remember standing on the White House lawn when uh, Menachem Begin and Anwar Sadat signed the uh, peace agreement uh, between Israel and Egypt and Jimmy Carter, of course. And uh, a man was standing next to me at the time and he says, isn't this exciting? I said, well, yes it is, but it's not going to last. Well, what do you mean? I said, well, because of human nature. It might last between Egypt and Israel, but uh, there are other forces in the Middle East uh, that are not happy about that. And we saw the result of that with the assassination of Anwar Sadat and the rise of the uh, mullahs in Iran and uh, the, the terrorists that we face today. So I think, uh, you know, you have to understand human nature and uh, scripture gives you the best uh, analysis of that. Uh, Otherwise, you're going to fall for the notion that, well, gee, maybe we can appease our enemies by just giving them a little bit of what they want and then they'll leave us alone. I give you Munich in 1939 as a response to that.
0: Hmm. Hmm. I, I, I mentioned you as a conservative, but you were often highly critical of the Republican Party and and this one there, there was I think a kind of a backhanded criticism of the Republicans in 1996. And I was reading through that year and saw that you actually praised Teddy Kennedy for being a politician who quote never gave up on his agenda. All right, the guy, the man had conviction. Right, he had resolve, and he was he was he was moving forward no matter what. That was there an implicit criticism that boy I wish we had a few more Republicans with with a little spine. Uh, like that, a little more firmness and and consistency,
1: correct? Yes. Well, Ted was a friend of mine. I liked him. I don't hate anybody because of their politics. Some people hate me because of mine, but that's their problem. But I used him as an example because uh, when the Democrats were in power, then a lot of his uh, uh, policies uh, advanced. And when the Republicans were in power, uh, he made uh, friendships with Republicans in order to uh, maybe more slowly but still advance his agenda. He and Orrin Hatch, a senator from Utah, Republican, had a great personal relationship. We don't have much of that anymore. Uh, yeah. These people fly in on a maybe late Monday when they're not taking vacations, and then they go to their respective uh, uh, caucuses and get their talking points for the, for the day. They don't uh, socialize together as they used to do when I was growing up in Washington. Uh, they don't know each other very well beyond labels. Uh, their spouses uh, usually don't come to Washington anymore. There used to be relationships with spouses in D.C. Uh, and there are almost no uh, you know parties anymore like there was when I was a young reporter. I think that's really too bad. Uh, because if we don 't know each other, you know we 're not each other 's enemies, we have enough enemies on the outside of the country. Why are we constantly belittling and bickering with each other uh, it's it 's just not what the American people say they want, and yet they keep electing the same people over and over again, expecting different results that 's the definition of insanity, as you know
0: <laughs> you know i I was a very low level political appointee in W's administration in 2003. I was in the uh, in the National Endowment for the Arts for for a few years. So again, nothing nothing important uh, about politics. But I was I was here during that time, and there there were some interactions with with people on the Hill uh, in our agency. And Cal, it, it was a completely different atmosphere, even in 03. I mean, as opposed to you know even 70s and 80s, than then it is now. It wasn't such a Sour mood uh prevailing inside the beltway, and that there, there was there was partisanship, of course, but there was also you know we're all in here playing the game yeah. you know we're, we're all trying to beat each other, but we're all in the same game out out on the out on the field, struggling uh, I tend to think that the Obama administration changed that.
1: Am I wrong? Well, there are a number of things that contributed to that. I think the Obama administration was part of it but you've got cable TV that have uh, they have two people on. One of them says, well, you're ruining America. And the other one says, no, you're ruining America. Well, you're a Bible-thubbing bigot. Well, you're a secular humanist commie. And the host says, <laughs> we'll be back with more civil discussion after these messages. You know, real people don't <laughs> behave that way. And so I think uh, that's part of the problem. The other is the fundraisers. And uh, mm-hmm. they send us $25 or th- this bad person is gonna do this to your daughter. And the other side says the same thing in the opposite direction. Uh, And then you have, of course, the uh, continued appeal for re-election. Over 90% of incumbents get re-elected. The founders never intended uh, politicians to be a, a career. George Washington, of course, set the model, going home to Mount Vernon after only two terms. Now you can't get rid of these people at all. And so if the objective is to get reelected, and if you're consulting polls to see how you should vote, and you're listening only to a narrow uh, group of lobbyists who say, if you vote this way, I'll contribute to your reelection campaign, that's why nothing gets solved in Washington. And it's not the way real people work. It's not the way you run a business. If you ran a business like uh, they run Congress, you'd be out of business in just a few months. Hmm
0: you You spent a lot of time on on you know the nine eleven and then afterwards and and the the Iraq invasion how do you you talk about the press also during that time? How do you rate the press's performance in in the run-up to the invasion of iraq and and, and during it
1: Well, I think there was an enormous amount of patriotism so much that it went it went so far that Tom Brokaw, who was then the anchor at n b c Uh, was criticized for not wearing an American flag lapel pin. (laughs) Uh, There was unity in the country after 9-11. And, uh, you know, George uh, W. Bush got a standing ovation when he threw out the first pitch in a Washington baseball game. Uh, But it quickly faded, as we've seen uh, support for Israel start to fade, even though Israel uh, was attacked on October 7th by Hamas. And, uh, you know, people we don't have much staying power anymore, you know, we, yeah. we don't stick with the right over the wrong and the good over the evil. And this is what Osama bin Laden always said. He he took Vietnam as as the model that America would never have the staying power to stay in the war, to combat terrorism. And that's what Iran is banking on now. And that's what Putin is banking on in Ukraine, that the United States will grow tired, spending too much money, the public opinion polls will shift away from support of Ukraine and Israel, and the uh, the opponents will have their way. Uh, that's not the way the world works. I mean, you know, evil must be opposed and hopefully destroyed. And if it's not, it eats you up like a, a virus or a cancer.
0: A personal question. Has the Internet altered your journalism, what
1: you do? Well, of course, and I don't know anybody who uh, who hasn't been altered. I mean, when I started... Uh, as a columnist in 1984. If I wanted to do research, I had to physically leave my house and go to a library. If I wanted to read old newspapers, they were on something called Microfish, Uh, And you reel the thing around to find out what you wanted or consult the encyclopedia. Now you have Google and other search engines, which are just tremendous. But you have to be careful, of course, by the internet because there's a lot of phony stuff out there. So, uh, yeah, the technology has changed tremendously. I don't have to go to a studio anymore to do my radio commentaries. I record them on my laptop as an MP3 file and send them off to a syndicator. Uh, it, it's great. I'm talking to you now on something that uh, would, would be unheard of uh, 20, 25 years ago. So yes, the technology has changed, but speeding up the process by which we receive and send information has not necessarily made us wiser. Uh, who who uh, majors on wisdom anymore? We sure. major on information. It's the information age. Well, we've got plenty of information, but we've got uh, too little wisdom I think we need to be focusing more on wisdom.
0: Last question, Cal. Uh, you've had contact with with all the presidents, sometimes close. Well, not
1: all of them. I didn't know Lincoln.
0: <laughs> I stand corrected. Uh, is is there one uh, personal impression that you could single out that? is wholly contrary to the popular image of that president that maybe even lingers today that you would share with us?
1: Well, I never, the ones I knew, uh, I didn't know intimately enough to be able to uh, uh, give an accurate answer to that. I mean, all presidents, especially in the television age, are actors to a certain point. Uh, Obviously, Ronald Reagan, who was an actor, was the best at it, and his biographer could never get Through to the core of who the man was because he you know shielded himself from this, as many did in the yeah. World War II generation, by the way. But I think uh Reagan was the most interesting for me. I mean, the first president I saw in person was Jack Kennedy, who had a tremendous aura of personality about him. But uh, they all have I mean, Clinton had Obama, had uh, you know, the Bushes, not so much, but uh. uh yeah. They, uh, they are all actors on the world stage, and especially in the TV age. I mean, you look at some of the presidents and their voices and the way they looked before television. Think of Calvin Coolidge or Herbert Hoover, uh, going, William McKinley. Uh, I don't know how some of the, the lesser-known one, ones looked, unless I looked up and saw drawings before of photography or paintings. But, um, you know, you can't get elected anymore if you don't have a certain personality and a certain look and a certain way about you. So, uh, you know, I remember something Reagan told me once uh, we had lunch together at the White House, and he said, uh, some people think this job is all powerful, but I'll frequently give an order and see it frustrated three or four levels down in the bureaucracy. That's the definition of the swamp. But I think (laughs) of all the presidents I've known or met, uh, I think he was the most personable, and the one who was least changed by the presidency. He knew who he was coming in, and he was the same man when he left. Not Hmm. many can say that.
0: There's much more in the book, many more things uh, uh, running through the 50 years. Uh, But for now, the book is A Watchman in the Night, What I've Seen Over 50 Years Reporting on America. Cal Thomas, thank you for joining us.
1: Mark, it's a pleasure. I have a money-back guarantee on my book. If you don't like it, I guarantee you not to give your money back. (laughs) Okay.
0: Very good.